morning, and uh, it's great to see you all here at the Medina East Campus as we are continuing uh, in a series that we actually started last week that we're calling Jesus Come and See. And so like Steve mentioned just a moment ago, if you are a guest with us here today, if it's your first time at Grace Church, the Medina East Campus, we would just want to extend a very, very special welcome to you. We hope you feel welcome because you are, so thanks for being our guest. And my name is Tony. I'm one of the pastors here on staff at Grace, and so if we've never had a chance to meet, I would love to remedy that. And so if you could, after you're done at services, come and meet me in the cafe. I'd love to hear your story, how you got here, and um, how your family got connected to Grace. That'd be, that'd be really wonderful. Uh, but like I said, we are uh, continuing in the series we started last week that's called Jesus Come and See. And so right, right kind of from the beginning, I want to encourage you, if you would, why don't you grab your Bible with me, and we are going to go to Matthew chapter 3. So if you grab your Bible, if you please turn with me to Matthew 3. It's actually we're going to be spending the bulk of our time is at the end of chapter 3 and then also into chapter 4 uh, in the Gospel of Matthew. And so if you would open up to that. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, you can feel free to make use of uh, one of the Bibles that we've provided for you in the chairs underneath the seats, page 676 in those Bibles. And then if you don't own a Bible, uh, don't own a physical copy of the Bible for yourself, feel free to take one of ours. We would love to to gift you with that. And so you can go ahead and have one of those. So Matthew 3, uh, go ahead and find that, flip there, and uh, meet me there. And as we're we're turning to Matthew 3, let me just kind of tell you, if you are just joining us a little bit with this whole series is kind of all about. So this past week um, at my life group, the life group that I'm part of, we were, we were actually thinking about and answering a very, very interesting question. And so the question we were thinking about uh, was, was basically this question right here. We asked the question, what is your earliest memory that is associated with Jesus? Okay, so this was, as a life group, we were kind of thinking through, and this is the question we asked. We said, what is the earliest memory uh, that is associated with or connected with Jesus that you have. And it was, so we kind of went around the room and we got a chance to hear from everyone that was in our group. And then there was a follow-up question we asked. And the follow-up question is, was that memory positive or negative or, or neutral, right? So was it a positive or negative kind of memory? Was it neutral? And so we sort of asked that question. And I'll tell you what was interesting. It was very, very fascinating to hear how different people in the group answered that question. So our group, um, it's a variety of different backgrounds. Some people grew up in a church. Some people didn't grow up in a church. And it was really fascinating to hear uh, people's earliest memories that were connected to Jesus. And what we found was that uh, by and large, uh, most people, their earliest memory about Jesus was attached to a person. And so people would say, you know, my mom or my grandma or my neighbor or a friend or something like that, uh, or, or an experience, right? Some people would say, uh, I, you know, I, I went to this church function or there was some kind of experience. It actually got me thinking about my earliest memory associated with Jesus. And so my earliest memory, uh, when I was a kid, I remember um, my family would go to church sometimes. And when we went to church, the church that we went to, at the front of the sanctuary, there was this giant cross and on the cross was a statue of Jesus. And I remember as a kid, it terrified me uh, because Jesus obviously didn't look real happy when he was on the cross. He actually looked kind of mad and he would be looking down at you. And so I, I remember I kind of had this, a little bit of a terrified feeling about Jesus. In fact, I actually remember when I was a kid, I remember this nightmare I had. Uh, so when I, was a, when I was a kid, I used to suck my thumb and I used to hold a blanket when I sucked my thumb, kind of like Linus, you know, from the Charlie Brown thing. And, uh, and so I was starting to get to an age where I was probably a little bit too old for that. And so my parents were encouraging me to stop. So it was probably like six or 17 or something like that. <laughs> can't remember. Uh, now I was like four or five and my parents were trying to encourage me to stop. And I had this nightmare that Jesus came down from heaven and took my blanket. 
And, and I was really upset and he was really angry with me. And that, that's like, for me, for whatever reason, that was one of the earliest memories that I had associated with Jesus. And it was kind of a negative one. And, and, and so anyway, here's my point. If you were to think about this question, what is your earliest association, your earliest memory that is connected to Jesus? And I wonder how you would answer that question. I wonder what you would think. Whether you grew up in church or didn't, I think it's probably safe to assume, I, I think, in, in our society, in a room like this, uh, in this you know, time, in, in kind of history, in this moment that we are culturally, it's probably safe for me to assume that your first and earliest memory of Jesus is probably what I sometimes call a hand-me-down version of Jesus. I think that, I think that all of us begin with a perception of Jesus that is handed to us either from someone else or from some experience or from the media or whatever it might be. So what I mean by that is, for some of you, maybe you grew up in church, and my guess is if you thought about your first memory of Jesus, you probably associate it with your parents or your grandparents or maybe a church experience you had or maybe a picture that you saw or something like that. Even if you didn't grow up in the church, my guess is your earliest associating with Jesus was handed down to you maybe by the media or maybe you had a neighbor or you had an aunt that was a Christian and the only thing you knew about her was that she loved Jesus and also had 45 cats and thought that the president was the antichrist or something like that. But all of us begin with some type of association with Jesus that I believe is a hand-me-down version of Jesus. Now, here's why this series is so important. Because in this series, what we're doing is we're inviting everybody, regardless of where you are in your faith, whether you're a person that follows Jesus or you're a person that's investigating Jesus or a skeptical of Jesus, to come and see him for yourself. Because here's what I've discovered in my years as a pastor. What I have discovered is that most people that I've met that reject Jesus, and there might be some of you in this room who might categorize yourself that way. Maybe you've rejected Christianity, you've rejected Jesus. But what I've discovered is that most people who reject Jesus are rejecting a hand-me-down version. And so they're rejecting the Jesus that their parents uh, kind of gave them, or they're rejecting the Jesus that the church that they used to be part of or their youth pastor handed down to them. But they've actually never come and seen him, never come and saw Jesus for themselves. I've discovered that a lot of people have never actually looked at the, the teachings of Jesus and the life of Jesus and dug into those things in a deeper way. And here's what I've also learned. I've also learned that many people who follow Jesus are following a hand-me-down version of Jesus. And many people who've grown up in church and who even would say that they'd identify as Christ followers have never actually for themselves really dug into the teaching in the life of Jesus. And so this whole series is really our way. It's an invitation to say, let's come and see him. Let's look at, our, let's look at his teaching. Let's look at his life together kind of firsthand as we do that. So the way we've been doing that, if you were here last week, you might remember we said that we're gonna be going through the gospel of Matthew. So we're gonna be working our way through this gospel, the gospel of Matthew. And if you missed last week, I would encourage you to go and listen to that. It was kind of an introduction to this whole series. But here's what we said. We said the reason we're looking at Matthew is because Matthew is one of the earliest eyewitness first century historical accounts of the life of Jesus that we have in our possession. Uh, we actually have four first century eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus. And Matthew is the longest of them, 28 chapters. And it is one of the earliest that we have uh, of the account of Jesus's life. And Matthew was a guy who would have known Jesus. He was someone who would have observed his life, would have heard his teaching, and he recorded those things for us. And so we're looking together at this first century account of the life of Jesus. So today, we're gonna find ourselves in Matthew chapter three, like we mentioned just a moment ago. And let me tell you what we're gonna see here today. What we're gonna see as we come and see Jesus is we're gonna see his baptism 
and we're gonna see his temptation. So the temptation and baptism of Jesus is what we're gonna look at together here today. And this is a very, very significant passage that we're gonna look at. Now, before we start reading this, let me just give you a little bit of background, okay? So the way the Gospel of Matthew starts in chapter one is it actually begins with a genealogy. And so if you read through the Gospel of Matthew, you'll find that it begins with a genealogy that accounts for the lineage and the family line of Jesus. Now, that might sound really boring to you, by the way. I know that genealogies aren't probably something that gets you real excited. But I got to tell you that if you think the genealogy of Matthew is boring, uh, you have another thing coming because it is actually really, really, really intriguing. And what Matthew is trying to tell us about Jesus through the genealogy it's actually really powerful. In fact, get this, we actually did as a campus an entire series on the genealogy of Matthew. And some of you are like, that sounds so boring. It wasn't, it actually was really awesome. And if you missed that, I wanna encourage you, you can go back and listen to it. It's called All is Calm. And uh, there's a lot that that genealogy has to say about Jesus. So anyway, Matthew one, genealogy. And then Matthew one and two is the Christmas story. It tells us about Jesus' birth, the circumstances that surrounded that, Jesus as a baby. Now, by the time you get to chapter three, what you're gonna find, it's really interesting, Jesus is now an adult. So Matthew says nothing about Jesus' childhood. It tells us his genealogy, about the Christmas story, and now all of a sudden he's adult and the, an adult. And the first thing we're gonna see that happens with Jesus is that he is going to be baptized and then he is going to be tempted. So let's read the passage together. We're gonna to read the whole thing and then we'll come back and we'll make some observations. Okay, so here we go. We're gonna start off in verse, uh, verse uh, 16. Here's what it says. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. And then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Then the tempter came and he said to him, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then the devil took him to a holy city and he had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, then throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered him, it's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. All of this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and you will worship me. But Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him and the angels came and they attended to him. All right, so this is a passage we're gonna think through a little bit. Now, here, here's the thing. This passage is a very, very famous passage. In fact, there are, uh, you might not know this, there are books and books and books and pages and pages and pages that are written on these short verses that we looked at together. There is so much that we could say about what we just read. But for time's sake, what I want to do is I actually want to just observe together three things about this passage, three things that I think are very significant that this passage teaches us as we come and see Jesus. And here's the three things. So just if you're looking for a little bit of a roadmap, here's the three things I want to look at. I think this passage is about to teach us something about us. So the temptation of Jesus is going to teach us something about us and about our temptation, okay? I think it's also going to teach us something about Jesus, obviously, it's gonna teach us something about Jesus. And then lastly, 
It's gonna tell us something about us and Jesus. Okay, so does that make sense? Here's what I wanna talk about with the rest of our time. I wanna talk about how this passage says something about us and our temptation. It says something about Jesus, obviously. And then it says something about us and Jesus and, and how this all interacts within our temptation. All right, so let's just think through it together. Let's begin at the top. Let's talk about what this passage says about us in our temptation. Now, it is, uh, it's pretty obvious that this passage is most clearly and mainly about Jesus, right? This passage is about Jesus, without a doubt. That is the most important aspect of this whole passage is what it tells us about Jesus. But here's what I want us to see is that this passage doesn't simply tell us about Jesus, but it also tells us about ourselves. Now, you might be like, well, where are you getting that? Well, let me, let me just show you something real quick. There's another passage uh, in the book of Hebrews, and it says this. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says that Jesus has been, look at this, he has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. So here's what Hebrews says. It says that Jesus, Jesus has been tempted in every way that you and I have been tempted, yet he didn't sin. In other words, to understand Jesus' temptation is to understand our own because Jesus has been tempted in every way that we've been tempted and yet he has never sinned. Now, let me tell you real quick what this verse doesn't mean, okay? Because some people misunderstand this. What this verse doesn't mean is that Jesus has been tempted in every specific way that you and I are tempted, okay? So for example, when Jesus was led into the wilderness, he was not tempted to look at pornography on his computer on the internet. He didn't have the internet, he didn't have a computer. So he wasn't tempted in these specific ways. When Jesus went into the wilderness to be tempted, uh, he wasn't tempted to blast someone on social media. He wasn't tempted to do that. When Jesus was uh, off in the wilderness, he wasn't tempted to play Fortnite all night and not do his homework, right? And I'm talking to the adult men, by the way, in this room. You guys know who you are, right? And so he wasn't tempted, Jesus never had kids, Jesus was never married, Jesus never had a girlfriend that we know of. And so the temptations that he would have faced aren't the specific temptations that we face. But what does it mean then? Well, here's what it means. What it means is that there are actually no new temptations, that there's just the same old temptations dressed up in shiny new ways. In other words, what this is telling us is I believe that there is actually a common denominator that is behind all temptation that we face. And that that common denominator, that common core that is behind every temptation that we face is what Jesus himself faced. And so what the Bible is telling us is that if you want to understand the anatomy of your own temptation, you have to understand how Jesus was tempted because he was tempted in the same ways that we are. And so I believe in this passage, what we're going to see is we're going to see the common core, the common denominator, the root of all temptation, temptation you face, temptation I face, temptation that is common to all of humanity. And what is it? What is at the root? What is the common denominator behind all temptation? Well, let me show you what I think it is. So if you notice with me at verse one, back in Matthew chapter four, verse one, the Bible says something very important here that can sometimes be missed. And I want you to notice this. It says, then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now in this verse, there is a very important word that I think is very troubling because it helps us understand the temptation of Jesus and it also helps us understand our temptation. And you might be surprised what word it is that troubles me the most. Because the word that troubles me the most in this passage is actually not this one, devil. That doesn't trouble me as much. Now that might trouble you. And I feel like, by the way, whenever this topic comes up, whenever this name, the devil comes up in modern society, I feel like I always need to say something. Uh, because as you guys know, 
Uh, we live in a modern age where if you were to cut any room in half, about half of the people might actually believe that there is a real devil. In fact, some of you might, now, might even right now, when you see that it says devil, you might be rolling your eyes and you might be thinking, okay, all right, is this where we're going for real? We're, talk, we're talking about a devil. Is that what we're doing? We're talking about a guy wearing a red suit with a tail and, you know, pitchfork and horns. Is that, is that where we're going? I thought, I thought we were over this. I thought we didn't believe this. Well, don't we all know that this is just, you know, ancient folklore and we're modern people and we're past that now. We're so much more educated. People back then were so naive. And, uh, and so I think that sometimes we have to stop and just mention this. So let me just, let me just say quick response because quite honestly, we could spend an entire sermon series talking about this topic, which we might do someday. But let me just give you a quick soundbite and a quick response if that's where you are, if you're skeptical of this right here. And so, so here's, here's kind of the bottom line. I think all of us in this room would probably agree that there are some, some very, very dark and terrible things that happen in this world. Like all of us would probably agree on that. If you look at human history, you look at wars and counter wars, when you look at our, your own newsfeed and you look at some of the atrocious headlines that you see, just the gut-wrenching headlines that you read every day, when you look at the, your, the dysfunction in your own family room, in your own family, when you look at even the darkness within yourself, your, your own inability to do what's right sometimes to fight against that, I think all of this is indicative of the fact that there is some type of dark force that is at play in the human experience. Now, some people are going to call that evil. Some people have a different explanation for that. But what the Bible is going to say is that behind that dark force, that behind the evil that we see in this world, that there is an intelligence, there is a strategy, and there's a personality that is behind that. And the character, the Bible says, that is behind all of that is the devil, or sometimes he's called Satan, sometimes he's called the serpent of old, sometimes he is called the God of this age. There's a lot of different ways he shows up. Now again, some of you might be thinking, man, it is so naive if you believe that. You're so naive if you believe that. And it's fine if you think that, but let me just tell you, biblically speaking, Jesus did not think it was naive, obviously. John did not think it was naive. Peter didn't think it was naive. Paul didn't think it was. None of the writers of the, of the Bible thought it was naive. In fact, in the New Testament, I don't know if you knew this, but the devil or Satan or some rendition of that term shows up over 250 times in the New Testament alone, which means that's at least once per chapter that this guy shows up. So if you accept any of the Bible, you have to somehow rectify that, all right? And even if you're not a Bible person, you don't believe in the Bible, I think you still have to construct some kind of philosophical worldview that can account for why something so beautiful as humanity can do the destructive and terrible things that we do to each other. You have to think of some way to answer that, and the Bible's gonna give a response, and it's gonna say, in part, it is because there is this, there is this, there is him, there is a character, there's a personality that's behind it. Now, like I said, this actually doesn't trouble me. The word that troubles me the most, and this might surprise you, is actually this word right here. It's the word then. It's the word then. And this is really significant. And why, why is this significant? Because, because, listen, everything that we're about to see that happens with Jesus in the wilderness the temptation that he faces is all a result and it's all a response and it's all directly correlated to what happened immediately previous. And what is it that happened immediately previous to this? You guys remember? Jesus was baptized. We just read it. And apparently it was some kind of mystical experience because the Bible says some pretty crazy stuff happened. The Holy Spirit came down from heaven and descended on Jesus like a dove. I don't even know what that means, but apparently something cool, something cool must have happened there. And then look at the verse right before this, chapter 3, verse 17. 
And a voice came from heaven during Jesus' baptism. Okay, so this is a voice from heaven. It's kind of crazy. God speaks. And what does he say? He says, this is my son whom I love and with whom I'm well pleased. So this is an amazing, amazing climactic experience, right? Jesus is baptized in the spirit and then God from heaven speaks. He says, this is my son and I love him and I'm well pleased with him. And then the Bible says, then, then. The gospel of Mark says it this way. Immediately, immediately after Jesus comes out of the water, he is led by the spirit, mind you, by the spirit, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. I, I love the way I was reading um, a book this past week. It was, it's by a guy named Dr. Russell Moore. It's called Tempted and Tried. If you're looking for a good read on the topic of temptation, I would encourage you to read it. It's Dr. Russell Moore, Tempted and Tried. And I love what he said about this passage. He said this. He said, in order to understand the temptation of Jesus, we have to understand that his hair was still wet when he stepped out into the wilderness. In other words, what he means is this. What he means is, you cannot understand what the temptations of Jesus mean unless you first understand what happened at the baptism. In other words, what happened at Jesus' baptism is directly related and correlated to what happens in his temptation. Now, let me show you what I'm talking about. So, so watch this. Jesus is led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The Bible says in verse 2, after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, it's a long time, 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Yeah, I think so, right? 40 days, 40 He was hungry. Now, this might sound like an obvious statement when we read that, and it is kind of an obvious statement, but I think it's a really important statement because I think what Matthew is trying to tell us is that Jesus, when he underwent temptation, that he was in a very weak and vulnerable position, humanistically speaking. And my wife and I, sometimes we do premarital counseling. We used to do a lot of premarital counseling when we, were, when we did college ministry, and one of the pieces of advice that we would give to couples, to newlyweds, was a piece of advice someone gave to us that was really helpful. And we used to tell them, we said, if you ever feel like there's a fight coming on, or if you ever feel like you're about to say something you're going to regret, or you're going to do something you're going to regret, we said, you need to stop, you need to pause, and before you say or do anything, you need to halt B, So we used to say. I don't know if you guys ever heard this before. This is a helpful piece of advice someone gave us. And of course, this is an acronym. You have to stop, and you got to ask, am I hungry, angry? Lonely, tired, or bored? Because if you're hungry, angry, lonely, tired, or bored, chances are good the thing that you want to say or do, you're probably going to regret it later. And you probably just need to get a snack or you probably just need to take a nap and later you're going to feel differently about it. Why is that? Because, because when we're hungry, angry, lonely, tired, or bored, we tend to be in a weakened position and we are more susceptible to give in to temptation when we're in this type of position. Now, here's what I want you to think about. Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights fasting. Now, was he hungry? Absolutely, he was hungry. Like, the Bible tells us that. Was he angry? I don't know if he was angry. He's probably hangry, at least, right? Lonely? Um, I mean, I'm guessing so. 40 days, 40 nights by himself in the wilderness. Tired? I can't imagine you sleep well out there. Bored? I don't know what you do in the wilderness. And, and so all, I think what he's saying here is you gotta understand that Jesus was in a very weakened position when the tempter came to him. So the tempter comes, now look at this, the tempter came to him and said, now this is so important, and so if you've tuned out everything I said, I want you to tune in here because this is so, so significant. The tempter came to him and said, now notice this, if you are the son of God, this is the tempter's first line of attack, if you are the son of God, this is very significant, 
And here's why. Remember back in chapter three when Jesus was baptized? What did God say to him? What did God say to Jesus when the heavens opened up? He said to him, you are my son who I love, with who I'm well pleased. And then the Bible says he goes out into the wilderness and then the voice of the tempter comes and says, if, if you are the son, if you are the son of God, if you are loved, if you are well-pleasing to God. Now, here's what I want you to notice is that this, this right here is at the root of all three temptations that the enemy brings to Jesus, all three of them. If you are the son of God, then make these stones bread and feed yourself. Provide for you. If you are the son of God, then prove yourself. Throw yourself off this mountain. If you are the son of God, then promote yourself. Then you, then you can come and you can have all the kings of the world if you would just come and you would worship me. But here's what I want you to understand because this is so significant. This right here is at the core of every temptation that you and I face to sin. And what is that? Here it is. It is that there is an enemy and there is an accuser who wants to come and wants to sow seeds of suspicion about God's fatherhood, about God's trustworthiness, about what God said to be true and right and real. So in Matthew chapter three, what do you see? Jesus declares something. God declares something about Jesus, about his identity, about his reality, about what's true. And then what happens in chapter four? An accuser comes and immediately calls into question what God said is true and is real and is right. What happens in chapter three? In chapter three, the, the clouds part and a voice from heaven says, this is my son. There's a voice from heaven that speaks at the end of chapter three. What happens in chapter four? A voice from hell comes right on its heels. God speaks, and then right after, there is an accuser who's right there to question what God said. Is God, does God really love you? Does he really care about you? Is he really your father? Will he? And, and the seeds of suspicion are sown. I love the way one commentator put it. He said this. He said, behind every temptation... There is an accuser who is trying to put question marks where God puts periods. Call into question what God said, his fatherly, you know, is he trustworthy? Is he really a good father? Is he really gonna provide for you? All these times. This is, listen, I'm just telling you, this is what he's been doing. The Bible says the accuser has been doing all the way back from the beginning. Some of you might remember in Genesis chapter three, what do we see? We see Adam and Eve, God created them. He puts them in paradise. God speaks he speaks something about reality. He speaks something about what's true. He speaks something about what's good and what's evil. And then immediately after God speaks, what happens? The serpent comes in and what does he do? He begins to call into question what God said. Did God really say? Is that what he said? And he calls this into suspicion. I just want you to understand, this is the anatomy of every temptation that you and I face. This is it. This is, this is the enemy's full frontal attack every time. You know, when I say demonic attack or I say satanic attack, like when I say that, it might sound super spiritual. What comes to your mind when I say demonic attack? You know what comes to my mind when I think of demonic attack? I think of the exorcist. Did you guys ever see the exorcist? Anyone ever see that movie before? If you did, don't. It'll mess you up, right? My wife saw that movie when she was a kid, like, a, like when she was a little kid, messed her up. I saw it when I was an adult, <laughs> messed me up. That movie's 
weird. And, uh, and when I think of demonic attack, like that's my first thought. I think of like a, a girl walking backwards down the stairs doing the spider walk. That scene still freaks me out if you've ever seen that movie before. But let me just ask you something. Right? We think of the Hollywood version of satanic and demonic attacks and all that kind of stuff. Can the devil do that kind of thing? I believe he can. But quite honestly, I think it's all a sideshow. His full frontal main act attack is to get you to question and to, to call into suspicion God's goodness, his fatherliness, his care for you. And so because of that, what he does is he, he, he works in such a way that he makes us say to ourselves, we can't trust God. So we have to protect ourselves. We have to provide for ourselves. And we ultimately are gonna have to provide and, and ultimately have to promote ourselves. That's exactly how Jesus was tempted. Just think about it for a minute. How many of you maybe in your life have ever felt this way before? Have you ever thought to yourself, if God really loves me, if God really loves me, or maybe you're a person that doesn't believe in God and maybe you rephrase it and you would say it this way, if there is a God who apparently people say is supposed to love me, have you ever had this thought before? Why won't God give me blank? If there is a God and he really loves me and he really cares for me and he is my you know, for those of us who follow Jesus, that he says that, we're his children, that we are his children, he's our father. If he's really my father and he really loves me and he's really well pleased with me, then why won't God give me blank? There's something in my life I desire. There's something that I hunger for. It's not even a bad thing. In fact, it's a good thing. It's something I believe will bring me happiness and joy and yet God is denying me that. Does God really love me? Have you, has anyone ever thought that? I know I've thought that, but some of you right now, you're in this place right now. Maybe there's something that you have been asking God for that you deeply desire, that you deeply hunger. Some, for some of you, for example, maybe you're in a position right now, you deeply hunger for a relationship. You hunger to, to not be lonely in this life, but to have a, maybe a spouse one day or maybe to have that kind of relationship. You, you desire that. That's a wonderful, good thing. It's a good hunger that is in your heart. And, but, but you've been praying, for some of you, you've been praying and you've been asking God, you've been pleading with God, God, please, would you give this to me? God, would you please give this to me? God, would you please give this to me? I believe it'll make me happy. And it seems like he's not coming through. Or how about this? Maybe for some of you, you're in this room and you're battling infertility and, and you desperately wanna have a baby and you've been trying and maybe you don't even believe in God, but since you've been trying, you find yourself praying. You're saying, God, please, God, please, God, please. And you, you're watching all these other people have kids and it's difficult for you because you're, you're trying to be happy for them. But at the same time, it's a constant reminder of what you don't have. And you're asking, God, God, please, God, please, God, please. This isn't a bad thing that I'm asking you for. Maybe for some of you right now, you're asking for healing. Maybe healing for a loved one. Maybe there's a family member and it's terminal. And you're going, God, if, you're, if you really love us and you really care and you're really powerful and you're able, why wouldn't you heal them? Why wouldn't you just do that? It makes no sense to me. Maybe for some of you, you've been begging God to heal your marriage. Save my marriage, God, save our marriage. God, please save our marriage. And yet, after all of these prayers, after all of this coming to God and pleading, you find you're still single. You find that you're still paying the health bills. You find that you're still babyless. You find that the marriage that you desperately pleaded for is gone. And what are you left with? You're just left with a big question. If God, if God really loves me, if God really cares for me, if God is supposed to be a father who provides for me, then where is he right now? And I'm just telling you, I think what this passage is telling us is if you've ever heard that voice, which I believe every single one of us has, if you've ever heard that voice, then he's telling us this is the voice of the tempter. 
This is not a new voice. This is a very old voice. This is a voice that goes all the way back to the beginning, to the first humans in Genesis chapter 3. This is, see, the tempter wants us to believe this. The tempter wants us to believe that if God really loves you, he would never put any restraints on your desires. The tempter wants us to believe this, that if God would deny you anything, that means he would deny you everything. And so we can ignore the myriad, the hundreds of thousands of graces that are bestowed on our life every moment of every day and fixate on the one thing that God is not providing for us. And we can look and say, I don't know if I can really trust him. I don't know if I can really trust him. And so the tempter wants us to believe that, man, if God, if God really loves you, if he really cares for you, that then why isn't he providing for you? And so you know what you need to do? You need to provide for yourself. You need to take care of yourself because God is not sufficient enough to take care of your needs and so you need to take matters into your own hands. The enemy wants us to act like orphans and not like children and grab and take for ourselves and provide for ourselves and protect ourselves and promote ourselves. Or how about this? You ever have this thought before? If God really loves me, why would he allow blank? If God really loves me, why would he allow pain or hurt or suffering or this person to, to be so frustrated with me or this, this painful situation? Why would he allow these things if God really cared about me? You ever think that way before? I'm just saying, I, I think the tempter wants us to believe that if we are living under God's protection, that means that we will never face a moment of, of obscurity or vulnerability, that we'll never be in a situation where we're suffering. And yet here we have Jesus, who is the son of God, who the Bible says, God says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And he is led into the wilderness to be tempted, not in spite of God's love for him, but because of God's love for him. It introduces a whole new category of thinking to us. See, I believe that what's behind all temptation, the anatomy of all temptation we face is really this. It is this lie right here. And this is the lie the accuser wants us to believe from the very beginning, that is to find freedom and joy in this life, I have to run from the author of life. If you wanna find freedom and joy, don't run to God, run away from God. I mean, is, is this not the mantra of our day to day? If you wanna be free, and if you want to find joy, then you need to get away from God. God is oppressive. He's a tyrant. The things that he says, they're, they're oppressive. Is this not the sexual ethic of our day? You want to be free? Don't run to God. What God has to say about sexual matters is oppressive and it's restraining and it's restrictive. If you want to find real freedom and real joy, you're going to have to define it on your own. Run from the author of life. Run from the author of life. And this is at the root of every temptation that we face. And let me just say, that if you've ever thought this before, that does not make you someone who is unique. That makes us all the same because all of us have faced the same temptation. If you've ever believed this before, that doesn't make you a bad Christian. It actually makes you a normal Christian because this is a normal temptation that all of us face. But here's the thing. This passage tells us something about us, helps us understand our temptation, but even more significantly is it tells us something about Jesus. Now, I don't need to spend as much time on this one because it's so straightforward. But I've noticed in this passage, Matthew is trying to tell us something very significant and something very powerful about Jesus. And some of you might be saying, oh yeah, he's trying to tell us that Jesus didn't succumb to temptation. But I gotta tell you, he's actually telling us something much more than that. Uh, this passage is so deep and is so rich, it is hard in a short period of time to explain all the significance behind it. But I just wanna show you something real quick. When Matthew tells the story of Jesus' temptation, he tells it in a specific way because he's trying to tell us something about Jesus. So let me, let me put it this way. I know that not everyone in this room is a Bible person, but for those of you who are familiar with your Bible, can you think of another time in the Bible story where you see these three elements happening? Where there's a devil who is tempting people 
and there's food involved. Right? Can anyone think of another place in the Bible where you see that? Anyone know? Anyone tell me? Yeah, right. it's in Genesis. Back in Genesis, we see, we just talked about it a moment ago. This is Adam and Eve in the garden. God creates the first humans. God speaks to them. The enemy comes. He tempts them. And then the Bible says, with, you know, there's, the, there's fruit involved in the whole thing. And so they're tested. And how did Adam and Eve do on the test? How did they do? You guys remember? Like, not good. It went real bad for them. They failed. Miserably, they failed the test. And they sinned against God. And they introduced sin into the human experience in Genesis chapter 3. And so the Bible says that Jesus is being tempted. It's a reenactment of what happened in Genesis 3. But not only that, and this blows me away, I want you to notice something else. If, you, if you're a Bible person, do you know where else you see these elements? Someone passes through the water to be led into the wilderness by God for a period of 40 to be tested, 40 whatever to be tested. Does anyone know another place in the Bible where this shows up? Anyone know? Anyone know? Anyone know? Anyone? Yeah, Exodus. This is Exodus. If you've ever read the book of Exodus, what happens? God's chosen people, the Israelites, are led out of captivity. They're led through the Red Sea, through the water. By the Spirit, they're led into the wilderness. Pillar of fire by night, pillar of cloud by day. They are led by God into the wilderness. And you know what the Bible says? Why they're led in the wilderness? To be tested for 40 years. How did Israel do in the desert? How did they do on that test? Yeah, real bad. Flunked miserably. So, so now, I want you to notice this. What Matthew is telling us is he's reenacting what happens in Genesis 3. He's reenacting what happens in the Exodus story. Jesus is baptized through the waters. He is led by the Spirit into the wilderness for a period of 40 days to be tested. And what's even more fascinating, this is so interesting. If you notice, when Jesus is, is tempted all three times, he's tempted by the devil, he reacts in the same way. And what does he do? He quotes Scripture. But not just Scripture. Do you notice where he quotes Scripture? This is why it's important that you read your footnotes, that you look at it, because it's really significant. Where does Jesus quote in the Bible? Well, he quotes from the same portion all three times. He quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, Deuteronomy chapter 6, and Deuteronomy chapter 8. It's all the same section. And what's happening in that section? Well, if you go back and read it, what you'll find is it's actually the story of the Israelites in the desert. And it's the story of how when they were tested, they failed. And now Jesus is basically saying that in the same way the Israelites were tested, he is tempted in the same ways, except he doesn't fail. He succeeds. And so what, what is Matthew telling us about Jesus? Here's what he's trying to say. He's saying, come and see, come and see. Someone who has gone where no man has ever gone before. Where Adam and Eve failed, where the Israelites failed, where every human being has failed the test. You and I failed the test. We've all sinned against God. Every single one of us has. But what he's saying is where everyone else has failed, Jesus has succeeded. Jesus passed the test. And he's the only one who's ever passed the test. In other words, what he's saying is Jesus is the champion. Jesus is the victor. Jesus is the one who has overcome the tempter. He is the one who has overcome Satan, sin, and ultimately will overcome death. See, I think because of that, what that tells us then is it tells us the same thing. Just like in Hebrews 4, Jesus has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he never sinned. He didn't sin. He, he experienced the full brunt of what temptation has to offer, and yet he resisted all the way to the end. So I believe what that teaches us is it teaches us something about us, Jesus, and then lastly, practically, I think it means something about us and Jesus. I think it tells us something about how we should interact in our own temptations, and here's what I think it is. What does it tell us about us and Jesus? Well, I think it tells us this. The best thing you can do is put your faith in Jesus. 
the best thing you can do is to trust and follow Jesus. See, some people read this passage and they'll say, well, the practical takeaway is that when I'm tempted, I should memorize scripture and quote scripture when I'm tempted because that's what Jesus did. And if Jesus did it, then I can do it and then I'll win because Jesus quoted scripture three times. He got it right. He got three gold stars. And if I quote scripture three times when I'm tempted, I'm also gonna get three gold stars and I'm gonna pass the test. Now, let me just say, is it good to memorize scripture when you're in the midst of tempt? Absolutely. Yeah, we should follow the model of Jesus, but that's not the point. What is the point? The point is you can't do it. You can't. Jesus did. And so the best thing you can do to overcome temptation and to overcome sin in your life, that, that habit, that thing in your life that you keep coming back to that you can't seem to get out, what's the way out? Here it is. Follow Jesus. You follow him. He is your victory and he is your champion. And when you put your faith in him and you follow him, it's the way out. It's the way out. We ask the band to come up and as they kind of settle in, I wanna, I wanna end, I know this, this is kind of a big conversation talking about us and Jesus and us and Jesus, but I wanna end with something kind of practical because some of you are hearing this and you're saying, okay, so what you're saying is that, man, Jesus overcame this and that the, the key is that I need to follow Jesus, but how do I do that? Practically speaking, how do I do that? And so let me give you just some practical thoughts. I, I would just say this. I would say when you find yourself tempted, when you're tempted, so th this week, whatever, maybe even uh, today when you're tempted, um, I think here's some practical things in light of our conversation. So when you find yourself in that situation, when you find yourself in that moment, when you find yourself, when that opportunity is in front of you, when that substance is in front of you, when that person is in front of you, when it's, when it's late and that thing that's always is, is in front of you, when you find yourself tempted, here's what I would suggest you do in light of today's conversation. I think you should pause in the heat of that moment, pause, and then I would encourage you to do this. I would encourage you to, this might sound weird to some of you, Talk to Jesus. Talk to him. So before, before you go trying to muscle your way through it, I would say talk to him. Now, some of you are like, I don't even know if I believe in Jesus. All right, I triple dog dare you to do this. Is it gonna hurt you? Talk to him. And, and you're like, well, what do I say? What do I say? Well, here's some suggestions. Maybe this. Maybe you could ask, can you help me see? What am I believing that this is gonna give me that you will not? What am I believing right now? What am I actually believing that this is gonna provide for me, this is gonna give me? What kind of joy and freedom do I think that this is going to offer me that you will not? Think about it, ask him. If you don't know, ask him. And then I would say this, I would say, ask him, what did you say? What did you say? What did you say about that? What did you say is true? What did you say is right? What did you say is real? And if you don't know what he said is true, right, and real, this is why, by the way, things like biblical community are really important. Because when you're connected with, another, with a group of people who follow Jesus, we can help each other to say, well, this is what God said, and this is what God said about that. And we can help each other, point each other back to God's word. But ask, what did, what did you say? What did you say? And then I would say, here's the last thing. I would ask him, please, can you show me the way out? Jesus, can you please show it to me? Show it to me. You were the one who overcame this. You're the victor. And if I follow you, I believe that there's... An, so show me the way out. You know what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10? It says there is no temptation that you will face that God, God will not put you into a position where you cannot bear it. That he will never tempt you beyond your capacity and he will always offer you a way out. Always, that's a promise that God gives you. When you're tempted, there's always a way out. And so I would ask him, Jesus, where is it? Show me, where's the way out? Where is it? Give me the wisdom to see it. Give me the courage to take it. Show me the way out. Show me the way out. And you know what oftentimes the way out is, by the way? Often the way out is other people. 
Again, biblical community is so important. Sometimes you are a phone call or text away from victory. And following Jesus through this is ultimately the way that we get through temptation. Let's pray together. Well, we just want to say thanks so much, Jesus, for your words to us today. Thank you for not only the example that you've given us in your own temptation, but also the victory that you have handed to us, to those who follow you. And uh, God, if this is true, what Matthew is telling us, what he's inviting us to come and see is that you are more than sometimes we think, that you're more than just a good example, that you're more than just a model. And you are those things. You're a model to us of what it looks like to, to overcome. But even more than that, you're the only one who ever has. Um, if what Matthew is telling us is real, then you are unique. You are unique above every other person who's ever existed. Because where all of us at some point or another have believed the lie of the accuser, you fought and resisted to the very, very end, even to the point of shedding your blood. And so because of that, that means that we can stand in awe of you. And that means because of that, the only way out of temptation, the only way out of sin is to come to you and to follow you. You're, you're it. You're the way out. And so we're just confident that in the midst of these situations that we can cry out the name of Jesus and we can find our refuge in you. So thank you that you've overcome for us what we could not overcome for ourselves. I pray that you give us confidence in that. Help us to live differently as a result of that. I pray that you'd help us to view temptation differently. Help us to understand even the anatomy of what's going on in our own hearts when we're experiencing temptation. So Father, I pray you just bless us as we leave this place. Thank you for each and every person who's here who's dearly loved by you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.